You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future, but until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth shall be loosed in in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is the word of the Lord for our church, and it is given for our good. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Chantel. Would you bow your head and pray with me, and and let's ask for God's Spirit's guidance as we reflect on this important passage. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we do now come before you as your church, and we acknowledge that without your guidance, we will be lost, and we will make a mess of things. And so send your Spirit powerfully among us that we might see Christ and know what it means to rightly follow him. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord. You are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Uh, The church is not a building. How many of you have heard that phrase? It's quite common uh, during COVID. It's a quite common phrase uh, which which could be said, especially during a time when it seemed unwise for the church to gather. The church is not a building. And yet in this passage, what I want to argue and what I hope you'll see is that the church is indeed a building or at least a type of building. Uh, It may not be an ordinary building with ordinary walls and an ordinary roof, but the church is indeed a building no less. But it's a building that Jesus is building. And what I want to argue this morning is not only that the church is a building and Jesus is building it, but it's a building that you need to find yourself inside of. It's a building that when you enter, you will discover all that you've been searching for. It's a building that when you enter inside of it, you will experience confidence and peace that you just can't know outside of it. What I want to argue this morning, that the church is indeed a type of building. It is a building, an important building that you need to get inside. And if we're going to make sense of this passage, this passage, there's lots of ink that's been shed about it, quite a lot of debates around some of these issues. I want to look at uh, this morning just three key words and sort of organize our time together around these three key words. The first word I want to look at is rock. Then I want to look at keys and then gates. So rock, keys, and gates, okay? So first, if we're going to understand what it means for the church to be a building and know something of the peace, something of the the sort of existential calm that comes when you find the church, this building, when you enter, the way you feel home, we're going to have to understand this word rock. And you can see it quite clearly in verse 18. What does Jesus say? He says to Peter, you are uh, Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, I I have way too much that I would like to say to you, but out of love, and because I want you to remember some of it, I'm going to try to stay focused. But let me give you just a little bit of background that comes into play as to why Jesus says this. 
So Jesus, as I stated before, we're in a transition point in uh, Matthew's gospel. After this verse, we're going to find that Jesus is focusing his attention on reminding the disciples and teaching the disciples that he has come to suffer. Okay, and at this particular uh, juncture, he takes his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. Now, this is an important city. It's currently being ruled by Herod Philip, and he has renamed this city to Caesarea Philippi, Caesar Philip. He, he, you know, our politicians aren't the first to be self-seeking. He names the city after himself. He gives a little homage to Caesar to make sure he's on Caesar's good side. So Caesarea Philippi. It's a city that has had a long, long tradition of worshiping false gods. Actually, all the way back to Psalm 68, we find that here at, at this particular region was a place in which various demons were worshipped, where Baal was worshipped, even children's sacrifices took place. And this area of Caesarea Philippi, for some time, had been passed on and, and conquered by various peoples. At, at one point, the Greeks conquer it, and they set up an altar to Pan, the god Pan. And the altar is at the, the foot of a cave where water is sort of flowing out, sort of bubbling up from the earth and flowing out. And it becomes uh, this place of, of demon worship, of pagan worship, and all the sort of debauchery that accompanies the worshiping of demons took place here. And even after, uh, you know, sort of Israel is in this land and ruling over this land, Herod Philip is a puppet master ruler, and he's not really committed to sort of purifying the city to make sure God is, is worshipped rightly. And so these religions are coexisting side by side. This might be the high point of false worship in all of the land currently occupied by Israel in the time of this passage. And it's here that Jesus takes his disciples. It's here in a place where we know there were temples to worship Caesar and there were temples to worship the god Pan. And there's a long history of worshiping various false gods here. It's here that Jesus brings his disciples to teach them this important lesson. And he asks them, who do the people say I am? And, and indeed, the people give, in some senses, good answers. They say, maybe he's John the Baptist, maybe he's Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets of old, and Jesus certainly is no less than that. And yet Jesus looks them in the eyes and says, but who do you say I am? And as Matthew records in his gospel, Peter, true to the personality we learn about Peter throughout all of the Bible, stands forward and he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in giving this, this answer, he gives a loaded theological statement that I am quite confident Peter had no idea the depths uh, with which he was speaking. And in fact, the passage we're going to look at next week, Jesus, he's going to confront Jesus, and Jesus is going to say, get behind me, Satan, okay? So Peter is able to give this, this theological statement that you are the Christ, that means you are the anointed one, the one in which God's blessing has come upon. You are, you are the chosen one, the one who will lead God's people, one who is greater than the David to come, a true son of the living God, a hero. And Jesus says to Peter, you have no idea. Because it wasn't flesh and blood that revealed that to you. It wasn't actually even logical conclusions or even reading of the Old Testament. It was my Father in heaven. The only way you could have said that is if, if this had been graciously imparted to you and given to you, that you see me for who I am. This is a tremendous gift. Now, I have lots to say, and I'm, I'm going to try to state at the point, but let me just say as one very quick application. Jesus' statement to Peter, that blessed are you, Peter, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. This is no different for you today if you say, Jesus Christ is indeed my Messiah. He is indeed my master, my Lord. He indeed died for my sins, and he now calls the shots in my life. I say to you, as Jesus says to Peter, 
Flesh and blood didn't reveal this. Logical deductions, sharp thinking, important, critical, they contributed to it. But the state that we are in as sinful human beings, this ultimately is a gracious gift from our Heavenly Father that your eyes are open to see these things. Don't take that for granted. Peter makes this confession, and then after this, Jesus says to Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Okay? And here's where we get this vocab word, rock. And if we're going to understand the way the church is a building, a home that we need to enter into, we need to understand this idea as of rock. Now, what is Jesus saying when he says, Peter, you are the rock? Well, um, almost assuredly, Jesus is using a pun at this time. Uh, Peter's name sounds very similar to the the Aramaic word at the time for rock. In a sense, he's saying, uh, you know, Petros, you are Petra. You know, he's saying that, uh, Peter, you indeed are a rock. There's some similarities in French with Pierre. I told the kids during the profession of faith class, I try to pronounce it properly, but we're going to just stick with Pierre. You know, meaning both rock and a formal name uh, in French. What Jesus is doing is he's, he's using a play on words, and he's using a play on the setting as they're around these large rock formations. And he's saying, indeed, uh, Peter, you are the rock. Now, I don't do this very often, and if you want me to be up front, I feel the church to be incredibly divided. And I've used most of my ministry to do what I can to see the church move closer together, sort of practicing the historic Christian faith together. But this passage has been used primarily by the Roman Catholic Church to argue for the supremacy of the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, and his ability to sort of rule over and watch over all the church. Their argument is such that Jesus makes Peter the rock, and all churches now must be under or built upon this particular rock if they are going to succeed. And so therefore, Peter is the the sort of chief of the church, and to be in communion with Peter is to be part of the true church. I think it's important. Now, some of you might be rolling your eyes and say, "This, this is of no interest to me. But I think this is seriously important, especially as uh, Christianity, as we become more and more of a minority religion, the good things are we find ourselves in in contact with Christians who um, our great-great-grandparents would have had no time or business uh, interacting with. You know, Catholics and Protestants are coming together. Uh, Many people in this church ask me about sending their kids to Catholic school. This This is a common occurrence. And then one of the difficulties is you start to realize that these are, these are people who love Jesus Christ, and they are seeking in many times to promote the name of Jesus Christ, and yet there's very real differences. And the question often becomes, how do those differences come about? And I just want to take a couple of minutes as something of a side to, to, to give you some context. Um, listen, Christianity is illegal for the first three centuries, and not only is it illegal, but for the vast majority of the time, Christians are under tremendous persecution. And they must worship in hiding. They're being persecuted by the Jewish uh, community and they're being persecuted by the Roman community and there's seasons that are worse than others. But by and large, the church has to stay some measure in hiding. And when they're in hiding, false teaching begins to spread, sometimes accidentally, sometimes because wicked people sneak in and want to mislead the church. And what ends up happening over time, over the first couple hundred years of the church, is that certain cities were, were associated with prominent sort of senior pastors, as you will, prominent people in the church. So the city of Jerusalem is known to have Pastor James as the pastor. You know, we see this in Acts 15. He's the moderator, or he's the person in charge of the gathering of all the church as they come together to understand how the church will relate to the Jewish sort of purity laws. We also know cities like Antioch. Um, John Mark ends up in Antioch, and we know that, in a sense, he's the most prestigious pastor there. And so what happens is, in this time of persecution, and in the time of hiding, and as false teaching is spreading, certain bishops, certain pastors, 
become prominent because of their location and because of the associations that their church has with, with certain people at the beginning of church history. And so though the Bible uses the term bishop and elder interchangeably in a place like Acts 20, bishop, being associated under a bishop, became extremely important as heresies were flooding into the church. And these bishops, and I'm going to say some things maybe challenging towards the Roman Catholic face, for those of you who are Roman Catholic here, as you'll know, very rarely uh, will, will you hear this be so aggressive, but I want to say something very positive. These bishops were the people who fought and stood against heresies, sometimes suffering greatly. And they shaped much of the faith that we practice today, the creeds that we recite. These were shaped by these, these prominent pastors, these bishops in certain areas who stood strong in the face of pressure and, and, and promoted the Christian faith as we see passed on from Jesus through his apostles to us today. Now, the city of Rome was obviously the capital of uh, the Roman Empire for a season, and church history has said that Paul and Peter die there, and so, so it has been uh, remembered. And you may remember, though, that so because it was the capital, the, pa- the pastors in the city of Rome, especially the most senior pastor, the bishop, becomes prominent by virtue of his location on the earth and the, the power that's there. In the same way a pastor in you know, New York City has, has more power uh, than a pastor in, um, I don't know, Timmins, you know? In, in, in a strange way, they're looked up to by more people, and their teachings dis, uh, disseminate in a different way. So it was with the Bishop of Rome. And as, as things went, as time progressed, it, as you know, the Roman Empire, Constantine um, moves the capital from Rome. Where does he move it? He moves it to what he calls Constantinople. And in this time, this sets off a war. Some people begin to say, well, then the power that was sort of prominent in the Bishop of Rome has now been transferred to Constantinople. And around the 6th century, Gregory the Great, who's the first sort of real pope as we know it today, he begins to aggressively engage with this conflict between the East and the West. And he begins to denounce the powers of the bishops in the East. And by uh, just past the year 1000, uh, the Bishop of Rome, the sort of most senior pastor of the Church of Rome, he excommunicates all the Eastern bishops. And this conflict continues on to this day. Now, it's hard for me to, to overstate the power that the bishops had, especially the Bishop of Rome had, in Western history uh, up until almost present day. It's, it's almost impossible for me to overstate it. As soon as Christianity was made legal and then was attached to the Roman Empire, the bishops began to be people of great prominence and power, especially the Bishop of Rome. One story that might be of interest to you, around the year 1100, uh, Bishop Gregory VII, uh, the, the Bishop of Rome, excommunicates the Holy Roman Empire because the Holy Roman Emperor, Henry IV, uh, questions whether or not the Bishop of Rome has any real authority over his realm. And so Gregory VII excommunicates Henry IV saying, because of this. And Gregory IV realizes he's losing a lot of his people because of this excommunication, and people are turning on him. And so he comes to his senses and realizes he needs to acknowledge this as a wrong statement. And he goes to Rome, and he goes to uh, Gregory seeking for forgiveness, seeking to confess this as a sin. And as you may know, those of you who know history, Gregory VII makes him wait three days in the snow before he'll meet with him and uh, hear his confession and uh, remind him of the forgiveness that is offered. Now, why do I share this? These were people of incredible prominence. Their blessing became, prominent, uh, became significant and who ruled over certain lands. And this caused more and more controversy. By the 16th century, the Bishop of Rome is trying to build St. Peter's Cathedral, the very cathedral some of you probably visited last summer or will visit in summers to come. 
And as part of his building campaign, a theology of the Roman Catholic Church, which at, at, in some levels was kind of a fringe theology, uh, whereby people could sort of buy their way into heaven, buy their way out of sort of the holding place between heaven and hell, that while they're waiting for their sins to be cleaned, this turns into a whole building campaign strategy, and funds are raised all around Europe. And this upsets many churches, but especially upsets the churches in Germany, and this results in the Reformation. I'm being very brief. We'll, we'll happily discuss church history anytime uh, you want. But Luther's desire, Martin Luther's desire, when he calls into question the power of the Bishop of Rome was not to create a new church. He questions whether or not they're actually following this rock. They're actually obeying what it means for Peter to be this rock. You know, Luther, when they ask him, are you starting a new church? Uh, you know, where was the church before the Reformation? He says, where was your face before you washed it? You know, it, it's where it's always been. It just needed to be cleansed. Um, and so a decision was made after searching the scriptures in the Protestant Reformation that the idea of bishops having prominence over certain regions is not, does not come with warrant from scripture. And certainly the idea of one bishop being the head over all others and having all the power, the Bishop of Rome, is not something that you find in scripture. And so the Protestant, as the Protestant Reformation uh, sort of moves forward, they begin to look at this passage and they realize that their understanding of this passage is exactly what the church in the East has always understood it to mean, and exactly what almost all Christians thought it meant prior to the, the fourth century. That what Jesus is saying to Peter here is that Peter is acting as a representative of all the apostles. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, to these apostles, you will be the foundation on the church uh, of, of which this building project I'm taking place will take place. You know, you see this in Ephesians, uh, as we flip over in, into Ephesians 2.20, that the church is going to be built on the foundation of what? The apostles. They, they are going to play a critical role in laying down the foundation of what it means to be part of God's church, part of the people of God, in the right building. They will play a foundation role. You remember in Revelation, which we just looked at, Revelation 21, in the new city that is to come which is a picture of the sort of heavenly temple that God has been building on earth through the church, we find that there's uh, 12 foundations, you know, representing these 12 apostles who become the, the, the very foundations by which uh, God is building the church. Even the apostle Peter, who's referred to as the rock here, in his letter in 1 Peter 2, he'll actually refer to the church as living stones. He has no problem saying that the apostles are foundations, but that, that, that people are being built on top of them. What am I trying uh, to argue here? Why does any of this matter? Those of you who've lost me, hang in there. What, what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say this, that when Jesus says to Peter, you are the rock, Peter is, is hearing that he is going to play a very unique and distinct role in church history. And we'll know that, right? The first 11 chapters of Acts, who's the primary leader and preacher that we find all through Acts, you know, 1 through 11? Is it not Peter? Aggressively, playing a role in seeing the gospel go forth everywhere in which, you know, he spreads the faith. The reason this matters is because the apostles will play this foundation role for the church. And the church is to build off that foundation, not build out from and not to lay new foundation, but to build off from this foundation. This matters because when we say, and we don't often say it, but the Nicene Creed, for example, we will, we will confess out loud that we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Catholic meaning universal, are all-encompassing. And apostolic meaning from and guided by the foundation of the apostles. Some will say to a church like ours, that we are, we are off and misguided, as the Roman Catholics would say about all of us gathering here today. Or the Eastern Orthodox would say, you are heterodox, you are other. 
you are disconnected from the church of the apostles. But the reason why I think with our heads held high, we can say that we are a church built on the foundation of the apostles is that we are a church that commits to the authority of God's word. What the apostles have said becomes our highest and prime authority for what it means to be the people of God. Sure, you know, the other churches might say, well, we know that we are part of the apostolic church because people have laid hands on people who've laid hands on people who've laid hands all the way back to the apostles. But all the heretics that rose in the church also had people who laid hands on them, who, from people who laid hands on them, from people who laid hands on them. There has to be a high standard through which we know that we are in the true household of God. And what I'm trying to argue is that if you are, are friends with, or if you're here and you find yourself misled, maybe, maybe I'm disconnected from what it means to truly be God's people. I, I, maybe I'm outside of the apostolic church. Maybe my soul is in danger of internal punishment. I'm telling you that what Jesus is saying to Peter is, you are the rock. You and all the apostles will play this foundation role. Your words will shape what it means to be the church. They will create the highest, will be the highest authority. And what it means to be an apostolic church is to be in line with the words of the apostles. Now, some of these churches have taken the words of the apostles and they built off the foundation, and they're now so far off the foundation, like a house that's kind of cantilevered too far off, that, that, that things start to crumble. The way we fix and know that we are rightly in line, we are rightly an apostolic church, is by knowing that we submit to and are guided by the words of the scriptures, the words of the apostles. What this means is, so long as a church proclaims that the scriptures are God's very word, and they will hold to all of them, and that Jesus Christ is Lord and he died for our sins, we need not question whether that church is truly a church based on its affiliation outside of that profession. Now, I will say, and I will spend all of my ministry that I'm with you, working my hardest for the church to continue to strive towards unity. We have a, a huge burden ahead, and unfortunately, I feel like I'm, you know, I'm part of a project that will probably be my great-grandchildren's great-grandchildren to see some of these major divisions in Christianity knocked down. It's my goal. It's my, my passion. But I say all this to say the way we are going to move forward, the way in which we are going to be truly apostolic is by being in line with the words of the apostles. Just say one last thing. For those of you who come into contact with churches, it's not that foreign of a situation. Churches, say, in China that are part of where it's also illegal to meet in certain regions, it's more illegal or more aggressively pursued. These churches need not fear whether or not they don't have the right blessing from the right outside body, so long as they submit to the words of the apostles and profess this faith in Christ. They can have full assurance that they indeed are a church, an apostolic church, following the exact message that was passed on from the apostles. What I'm trying to say is this. When Jesus calls Peter the rock, he's saying that you are going to lay a rock-solid foundation for the church. You will be the foundation, and you're the first among equals, so to speak, of, of the apostles. But your words and your actions are going to lay the foundation of a church that will go on through centuries. You are the rock. I can continue to keep going on and on. None of this is to say Peter is perfect. The next passage, she's going to be referred to as Satan. You remember in Galatians 2, the apostle Paul will rebuke Peter for failing, for being unwilling to eat with Gentile Christians. Uh, none of this is says perfect, but his words and his teaching become the very foundation. Next, we got to look at keys, and I'll move faster. And for those of you who can't stand history and you feel like you're back in Western Civ, hang in there. I won't. I'll. I'll. I'll not reference history. Maybe for a week and a half. Maybe. 
Verse, 16, uh, verse 19, what do we read? After, Je- after Peter makes this confession and Jesus makes this grand statement that Peter is the rock, we read that Jesus is going to give to him the, king- the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loosen on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, what does this mean? Uh, the idea of binding and loosening, these, these vocab words are not words we're acquainted with or frequently used, but they're quite common in rabbinical writing. And really what they mean is to be in charge, to have a measure of authority over and to have, uh, make sure things are running properly and in accord with uh, the way in which they're supposed to run. Now part of why I'm saying that Peter is not the sort of supreme bishop over all of them, even if he is first among equals, is that this phrase where Jesus gives to him the keys, it, it would seem as though Peter is alone is the, the holder of the keys, except for when you turn to John 20, for example, Jesus will give this exact same phrase, and he'll say it to all the apostles. All of, all of these first uh, apostles of Jesus will be given the keys there. And in Matthew 18, actually, which we'll look at in a couple of weeks, we're going to find that the whole church is called upon to use this power of the keys through the means of elders. They are to exercise discipline when there's conflict, and through the means of the elders, they are to use these binding and loosening power for the good of God's people. Now, what does it mean, though, these keys? What do they mean? Well, I want to say at the very least, it means that the church has a very real authority. Hear me clearly. It has a very, very real authority. That they can proclaim the forgiveness of sins, and in a very real way, as people hear this message and believe it, this is this, something that happens on earth becomes true in heaven as well. It is a very real authority. And when the church excommunicates people, you might roll your eyes and say, I'll just go somewhere else. But watch out. Jesus is saying there's a very, very real authority given to the church. This is why in 1 Corinthians, he will tell someone who is in the midst of heinous, unrepentant sin, he will tell the church to hand them over to Satan. He'll say, use the keys, and in a sense, lock them out, lest they change. Okay? The church has a very, very real authority. It's done primarily through the proclamation of the gospel and the administration of sacraments and of discipline. It's a real authority, but it's a delegated authority. Okay, some vocab words we would use is it's ministerial and declarative. What I'm trying to say is the church can get it wrong, but Jesus never does. His authority is absolute, and this authority is derivative. Based on the words that he's given, the authority, it, it, this, the authority is only insofar as Jesus has spoken clearly, the church then gets to proclaim clearly, declare clearly. Now, why is any of this important? Well, in an age of skepticism and great individualism, And in a time when the church is more notorious for its failings and its corruption, you must hear me say that that Jesus would instruct you still to take the church very seriously. Very seriously. Jesus will and still work through the church, and he's given to the church very, very real authority. But let me say this, that this authority is not given for your harassment, it's not given to beat you down in your Christian faith or to encourage building funds. This, is so, this authority is primarily given for your comforts. Because without the authority of the church, you will be stuck reading the words of Scripture and everything in your relationship with Jesus will exist simply in your mind and you will find yourself doubting, wondering, I can't be the only one who's been there. Am I truly a Christian? Do I really know what I'm saying? Do I really believe these things? Am I part of the people of God? Jesus has said, you're not stuck with just my word and your thoughts. I've given to you a people and I've given to you real authority in in the officers of the church to give you confidence and comfort that indeed your sins are forgiven when you return from your sins in Christ. And indeed you are part of the people of God. You, You ought not doubt. 
This has been the teaching of the church throughout all of church history. My hero John Calvin actually says, says of this authority that has been given to the church, which I think is incredibly helpful, Calvin says this, Let every believer therefore remember that if in private he is so agonized and afflicted by a sense of his sins that he cannot obtain relief without the aid of others, it is his duty not to neglect the remedy which God provides for him, to have recourse for relief to a private confession to his own pastor, and for consolation, privately implore the assistance of him whose business it is, both in public and private, to solace the people of God with the gospel doctrine. What is, what is John Calvin saying? What am I trying to say? John Calvin is saying is this. If there's anyone in this room right now who wonders if you've committed a sin that is too great that God can't forgive you, if you're wondering if God has been tormenting you with all these things going on in your life because you have some kind of sin and your confession is not real, John Calvin is saying, based on his reading of this particular passage, it is your duty, your duty to seek out the remedy where God has provided it, and he's provided it in his church, in the form of pastors, in the form of elders. I realize preaching this, you've got to understand, it's somewhat awkward because it feels like I'm sort of promoting myself, but I'm telling you, pastors come and go. I might not be here a year from now, but the office of pa- that wasn't some sort of veiled, you know, threat. I might not be here a day from now. The the office of pastor will remain. And it has been given for your benefit. It has been given for your good. Especially during those seasons when your conscience is plagued that you've done wrong. That God is against you. That he can't be for you. It is your duty to say, how do I find the answer to this? You search the scriptures. When you say, I just don't see in the scriptures clear enough. My conscience is plagued. You are to come and you are to ask the church to use the keys. The keys that are given for your comfort to say you're relieved. You know, as a response to this, Lyndon walked out of the room. So, I, you know, we'll, we'll put on the website a, uh, you know, you can sign up for confession with Lyndon. What I'm trying to say is, what I'm trying to say is this, though, that there, there is nothing wrong. And there is nothing shallow about your walk with Jesus. There's nothing uh, un, unfitting for a follower of Christ to not reach out to a pastor and say, I need help. Because the voices in my head are louder than the voices of the scriptures sometime. And I need someone outside of me with authority to say your sins are forgiven. And let me just say, as a, and as a aside, we confess our sin every Sunday. And you know, some Sundays, there's kids, like, declaring civil war in the back. You know, there's, like, someone throwing something. Uh, you know, there's coffee spilled. I, I, and I understand it's incredibly distracting. But do you understand what it means when a pastor stands up here and says, your sins are forgiven? You are to take that as though it's the words of heaven. Come down into your ears, and, and when you turn from your sins, you ought not doubt. God has given the authority, and he is in, he, this, is, this is what the keys are for, to be loosed of these things, to not be burdened by them. This is why church membership is of incredible importance. You know why? Because every Sunday, the elders will invite you to this table and will say, as far as we see, you are a part of the body of Christ. Take his body, take his blood. These benefits belong to you, and when your mind tells you to doubt, something outside of your mind is going to be more powerful. This is why church authority is incredibly important. When when you're in membership of our church, our elders are regularly praying for you. If you're not members, we still pray for you, but there's something important about committing yourself to a local body and elders committing themselves to you. There's a very real authority in this keys. I could go on and on. You can tell my blood pressure is probably going up. My Apple Watch thinks I'm working out. What I'm trying to say is this, okay? And and I'll have to be brief about the gates, but I could get wound up about that too. Here we go. Um, The rock. Jesus is saying the church, he, he's, built, he's laying a foundation, and he's going to build a mighty palace, a, a wonderful cathedral. And you and I are living stones being built on top of this rock, so long as we follow this teaching of the apostles, this message of the apostles. 
Then we looked at the keys. Peter's given very real authority. Very, it's delegated, okay? It's not, it doesn't derive inside of Peter. It's delegated from Jesus. But this is how Jesus wants things to work. Jesus doesn't mind middle management, okay? The authority gets it wrong. It's not perfect. But nonetheless, it is given for your comfort and your good. I hope I've made this point. Finally, let's look at gates. We've got to go back to the second half of verse 18. Jesus says to Peter, the gates of hell will not prevail against you. The gates of hell are in some translations Hades. This was a real place. If you visit uh, modern day, if you, if you are in what, is, what was modern, uh, Caesarea Philippi, you will know that there actually was a cave called the gates of hell because a spring boiled up out of there, it seems, and that there was a very real sense in which Jesus is referring to something sort of real but something metaphorical. And Jesus is saying, and I have to be brief, he is saying that the, the, the house that he's building, the one that he's giving keys to his church, is at war with another house. It's at war with the house of hell, the house that brings death and, and destruction. And what Jesus is promising, and you can go to the bank on it, is that, and now I don't know if you know this, not a lot of you are in military, but gates don't actually attack people. You know, gates are defensive. One person laughs. Gates are defensive, you know. Uh, they're defensive means. And Jesus is saying his church, his cathedral, it's going to be on the march. And it's going to march right up to the gates of death and destruction and Satan and all that is wrong with this world. And they will not overcome. They will not overcome. They will always be on the defensive and they will not prevail. This is a tremendous promise to you, Christians in Toronto, who might feel the church is losing. And because you think the church is losing, you're starting to think like losers. And the way losers think is that they form theology to, to sort of hold their head down high and say, oh, it's so bad, but maybe the Lord is going to come soon and just rescue us from this wretched place. Listen, it might be bad here, but I'll show you this. The church is not going to lose. It's not going to lose. On the global scale, the church is definitely winning, and the church will continue to win, not through guns and not through bombs, but through the proclamation of Jesus Christ. The church is God's plan A. There is no plan B, to quote another theologian. Death will be conquered. Death will be no more. And it's not going to happen one day, sort of out of nowhere. It's going to happen within history. Jesus is building his church. It's spectacular. Nothing is going to stop it. And though there will be setbacks, very real setbacks in our city, though there might be dark seasons, we might be in one of those dark seasons here in Toronto. It might never look like a straight climb. Jesus will bring victory to this world through his church. Maybe I could say it this way. Don't bet against the church. Do not bet against the church, and if you feel like we are in a bear market, the stocks are falling, now is a better time than ever to invest, because you can assure, we are, we are all bullish on the church. It is going to be victorious. It is going. It is because Jesus is its founder, not because of anything we do. It is because Jesus has promised this. The church will move forward with its weapons of the proclamation of the gospel, with its weapon of, of the church, with the power of the keys, and through these means, which look so powerless, all will be brought into subjection to our Lord Jesus Christ. And one day, all down the Danforth, and all down Young Street, and all over our city, the name of Jesus will be celebrated, will be praised. It is going to happen, and it will happen within history. I don't know if it's 100,000 years from now, or 100 years from now, but rest assured, Jesus is building his church, and there is nothing that will stand against it. Throughout all of history, people have prophesied the end of the church. The Roman Empire did whatever they could to, to try to snuff out the church. How did that work out for them? You know, how many of you are scared of Caesar right now? Think about uh, the French philosopher Voltaire. It's claimed that he said, 100 years from my life in 1776. 100 years 
from my day. There will not be a Bible on earth except for one that's looked at by antiquarian curi- uh, curiosity seekers. You know, Voltaire, how did that work out? Thomas Jefferson, 1822, very prominent man in the founding of the U.S., said that no man or woman living in the United States in his time will die a Christian. That Christianity is on the way out. This is just a selection of quotes. I could find hundreds of these people who say the church is on its way out, and there's times in my Christian life where I feel like the church is on its way out. And what I am saying is, friends, hard days may be ahead, but the church may struggle, but the church will be victorious. It really will. And Jesus is promising it. And the reason it's going to be victorious is because Jesus is going to work. But watch out. We know for sure that our Father doesn't mind winning through apparent defeat. That what looks like death often brings resurrection. And with resurrection, great victory. And so also, this is the work that he's calling us to. How do I conclude? Some of you are like, there's more words per minute than I've heard in a week. But the world we live in, the world as we know it is, is a home, it's a house, it's a kingdom that was hijacked by rebel forces, by Satan. And because this home was hijacked and the housekeeper was Satan, death and destruction and violence have been brought into our house. In a sense, we live in a house on fire. We're all born into a world that's like a house on fire. And what I'm saying is this, that the great story of the gospel is that Jesus has run into that house on fire. Okay? He's rescued you. He's rescued you. He saved you from your sins, from being a part of this this pattern of death and destruction and decay which will go on to eternity. He's rescued you, pulled you out from that house and he's now looking at you like a stone and chiseling you off and building you on top of these foundation stones. He's given you the church to be your comfort and he's given you this great promise that his kingdom will not end. What that means today is if you're here and if you hear what Jesus is doing and you say, this is something I want to be a part of. I need my sins forgiven. I need to trust him as my ruler. And you believe and you trust, then I'm telling you this forgiveness that is offered through my mouth is the forgiveness of heaven. And you're invited into this grand, grand project now of not only being the church, but also inviting more to come in so this grand cathedral can be built all throughout our world. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given to us the church, and it has not been a great season. And in fact, there's been days, even in my own life, where the actions of the church have caused more doubt than hope. And yet we trust you are working in and through your church to build your kingdom. We thank you for the many pastors who've shaped everyone in this room up to this point, and the many elders who've watched over and prayed for people, and we pray that you would make us a faithful church, one true to the teaching of the apostles, one that can pass on the faith well to our children and our children's children. Where the church is quite divided, we pray, Father, you would bring healing and unity. Continue to build us up so that we might represent Christ and his grand building project better to a watching world that so desperately needs rescue. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ChristChurchToronto.ca or email us at info at ChristChurchToronto.ca.